we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Prekorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies and your host. We were going to play for this week's episode the audio from a panel discussion we did on Afghan refugees, those who are already here, those who are coming. It's on our website at cis.org. You can watch or listen to the whole thing. But yet more news events blew up and had to take precedence. So what we're going to talk about today is something a lot of you will have seen in the news about this migrant encampment that has sprung up because of Biden's lax immigration enforcement at Del Rio, Texas, a place about halfway along the Texas border between the Gulf of Mexico and El Paso. It's kind of a remote place, but one of our analysts, our own Todd Benzman, who lives in Austin, and so when this all happened, he hopped into the car and has been reporting from there and actually scooping some of the national media. He's been writing about things that haven't really gotten into the broader national media discussion, and so I figured it was important to have Todd on this week and to tell us what's going on. So, Todd, if you could just start by telling us what's going on you know, in Del Rio now, how did it get that way, and um, you know, what have you learned? Sure. Well, for one thing, Haitians make up the majority of the people who have come into this camp, but Haitians have been coming across the southern border in very significant numbers, large numbers, for a year now seven, eight months since the Biden administration took office, and maybe a little bit before then, too, mostly in the Rio Grande Valley, without creating much fuss or muss. And they arrived mostly as family units, and family units were effectively exempted from the Title 42 immediate expulsion for for the pandemic, and have been paroled into the country. And so the paroling of large numbers, tens of thousands, really, of not just Haitians, but uh, Central American families and any other families that show up and uh, has really accelerated the arrivals of more and the travel plans of more and ever more from mostly Brazil and Chile, which is where large expatriate populations of Haitians live and have been living for years. And uh, what they tell me is that they heard that the Biden administration had opened the border. They didn't just hear that, but they have been seeing the selfies coming back and, you know, their friends and relatives all getting in and going to Florida, et cetera. So this has just enticed more and more. That has just been steady state. There's nothing new about Haitians coming in large numbers and everybody else too. But what happened in this particular micro instance is that the Biden administration 
had been kind of slow rolling the migration from their southern border. The Mexican government had, you mean? Yeah. The, Me- the Mexican yeah. government, yes. Yeah, sorry, right. yeah. Biden administration had requested that the Mexican government kind of do whatever they could to slow roll things on their southern border because the optics are generally not good and the polling numbers are not good for the administration. And so they put in place something like a kind of bureaucratic molasses down there requiring Haitians to apply for permission to be in Mexico before they would allow them to progress north. So they were all kind of, there was this sea of immigrants behind this bureaucratic, you know, wall or dam down there. And then according to the immigrants that I interviewed, quite a few of them who were behind that dam, on September 12th, Sunday, the government down there just said, never mind, never mind about your applications. And they'd been waiting three, four, five, six months down there. And all of a sudden they were free to proceed to the border. And so that very large mass of people did that. And they came to Del Rio mainly because of the relative safety and absence of Mexican cartel aggression and also the costs associated with uh, crossing the border are zero, so that you can just cross yourself over and the cartels don't mind in this one area. And that's been the case for a while, so they just sort of gravitated to this path of least resistance in this one big mass. What happens at other places in the border? In other words, how is it that Del Rio stands out? What do the cartels do elsewhere? You can't cross the border in the Rio Grande Valley, for example, uh, large stretches over there, and also in Laredo, without paying a significant tax. It might be $2,500, depends on what nationality you are, $5,000. If you try to cross without permission, you can be killed, kidnapped, held for extortion. It's very dangerous to try to cross without the cartel. So the cartels are cashing in on this bonanza and have put in place an inventory control system, for example, which we've reported about, where they require you to pay your $5,000 per person, and then you get a wristband, a numbered wristband. Like at a water park or something. Yeah, like at a water park. The other thing is that there are depredations of all sorts, kidnapping schemes and extortion schemes and you know, violent uh, sexual crimes and that sort of thing. And so what that means is if there's an area of the border where that's not happening, they're going to go there. And that's kind of what's been happening in the Del Rio area. We're taping this a couple days before we're going to air it, so things will change a little. But what's the situation at Del Rio now? How many people are there? Where are they? What's it looking like? So the camp peaked out at about 15,000, maybe just a little shy of 15,000 a few days ago. And DHS came up with a plan to get rid of this camp, eliminate it, reduce it by loading buses up and moving people into border patrol stations inland all around Texas and probably even other states. The main impetus for that was, first, it's a a political problem for the administration. The other immigration that's been happening, like I was describing before, has not attracted 
any sort of press coverage like this. It's a visual and it's a big problem. But the big issue also is that the authorities here feared a breakout. We've seen congregations like this in other countries, Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and even further south where governments have tried to contain large groups like this and violence breaks out and they smash through the fencing and whatever and go pell-mell running through. And that was foremost on everyone's mind. So the first people to be bust out are the young military-aged men. And today there are about 9,200, and I haven't been in there today. I'll try to get in a little bit later, but I'm told that it's mo it now looks like it's mostly women and children, and that's the way they like it. They're less likely, basically, to incite violence or start something. That's yeah. kind of thinking. I, I right. mean, I really can't understate how concerned everybody was about this prospect of a breakout and rioting. And in a sense, that itself was a political concern for yeah. the Biden administration, because it's not even just in Central America that we've seen that kind of thing, where governments try to bottle up a flow, a caravan, a group of people, and violence ensues. But you've seen the same thing. Actually, I think it was last month in one of the enclave that Spain owns in North Africa, it's either Ceuta or Melilla, where there was a similar, you know, massing of not Moroccans because it's in Morocco, but people from further south in Africa, and they broke through and started swarming the town. And so, I mean, that's that was a real possibility, and there was really nothing holding the Haitians in Del Rio in place, right? I mean, it's not like there was any real security barrier. No, and everyone in law enforcement was very acutely aware that they would be powerless to stop a surge, a breakthrough surge like that, and, and the visuals of something like that. And, I mean, the real public safety concerns uh, and, you know, the threat of that to the town of Del Rio uh, you know, was foremost on everybody's mind and has been for days. So they're trying to reduce that prospect. And I think they've done a, a pretty good job of it. I think people are starting to feel a little more comfortable today. But reducing the prospect of a breakout doesn't mean they're sending people home. Some people are going home. I want you to tell us a little bit about the people they're flying back to Haiti. But the numbers are relatively small, two, 300 a day, something like that, out of 15,000 isn't very much. What they basically seem to be doing is getting them out of this migrant encampment, this beachhead that they've formed on the U.S. side of the border. But like you said, just spreading them around elsewhere, and then eventually they're going to be letting most of them go into the U.S. That's probably true that most of them will be paroled in quietly and out of camera sight from all these different Border Patrol stations. That's my guess. I do hear that. In this case, the administration is contemplating really hiking the number of repatriation flights to include even family units, hmm. essentially sending the family units back to Chile, the last country of domicile. I don't know if that's going to actually happen. Is that even possible since you explained this long before any of the national media had talked about it? that very few of these Haitians are coming from Haiti. They, like you said, have been living in South America since the 2010 earthquake. And they've had, most of them have had work authorization, they've had jobs, they've had homes, some of them have had kids born there. 
and they're trying to upgrade by coming to the United States, but would Chile or Brazil even take them back because they're not citizens of those places? They just happen to have wangled a work permit. Yeah, and they abandoned those residencies right. and work authorizations. And, you know, in this country, if you do that, if you abandon it, you kind of have to get back in line if you want to come back. But I think the uh, this is all in the realm of diplomacy uh, right. between the administration and these countries. I mean, I'm sure that there's some leverages there if they wanted to. I'm still very skeptical that we will actually do that. And if we did do that as a nation, why would we just do that with the people who are in this camp and not with everybody in the RGV, far greater numbers of Haitians crossing like even in a day down there than uh, have been in total numbers in this camp. Right. Yeah, the RGV, just for listeners, Rio Grande Valley, it's basically further down the river, closer to the Gulf of Mexico, which is closer to Central America. And so that's kind of just for proximity's purposes is the place where most of the illegal immigrants, whether from Haiti or Uzbekistan or Honduras, have been crossing. It's just that, as you suggested, it's been kind of slow motion. In other words, it's not a mass of people that you can fly a drone over and take a picture. And so it doesn't get coverage, whereas this is something that even the media that is friendly to the Biden administration couldn't ignore. That's right. And also, if I can just make a, dis a quick distinction, it's not as though these Haitians in this camp could not have gotten around the Mexican uh, molasses, the bureaucracy. Lots and lots of Haitians have found very easy ways around there, but it costs money. Uh. The Mexican paperwork route is the cheap route, just like coming to Del Rio is the cheap route. Interesting. You don't have to pay. So this crowd here are folks that probably are less resourced than, you know, all of the Haitians that have been just crossing in huge numbers down in the Rio Grande Valley. And so those other Haitians, basically they had more money for bribes is kind of what it amounts to, and paying smugglers and stuff, whereas these guys didn't, and so this was the opportunity that presented itself. I wonder if we could just talk about why it seems the Mexican government did this. I mean, we don't know their internal deliberations, but they made this decision on an important holiday week in Mexico. And it seems to me that's not a coincidence because Mexican Independence Day was September 16th and they have like a week-long celebration. And so this seems to have been basically a Mexican Independence Day present or maybe just a a way of, because the Haitians had become kind of a headache for the Mexicans. They were causing trouble for the Mexican authorities when they were bottled up down in the border town of Tapachula, the Mexican town opposite Guatemala. There had been some, you know, some violence, some rock throwing, uh, all kinds of stuff. And so my sense is they just said, look, you know, it's sort of, it's a holiday. Get out of our hair. You got three days. Let's not see you back here when it's over. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it doesn't get reported very often, but as you know, I've spent time down in Tapachula and in a lot of these Mexican towns and cities, and uh, this kind of uh, immigration from places like Haiti and uh, it really even, even Colombia and Venezuela and other places, it's very unpopular in 
the local constituencies. People do in like Juarez did not like having Central Americans uh, when the caravans came up and got broken up. Uh, were you know very agitated and made their unhappiness known to local politicians, and it's just very unpopular. They Mexicans are happy when the immigrants don't stay; they become the U.S.'s problem, and I think that's what happened here. I mean, it's speculative, but. I think the Mexican government just gave their people a present, right? <laughs> you know, and said, "Here's your present." But we're moving these people out. But at the same time, uh, it's a diplomatic affront to the Biden administration because they had a deal. Right. The deal has been well reported. It's a backstab. It's a disrespect. It's a diss. So it seems unlikely that this is the kind of thing they would have done to President Trump, because you could only imagine what the response would have been. Whereas, you know, in a sense, this is, if you think about it indirectly, one more consequence of the humiliation in Afghanistan is that nobody's afraid of Biden. And so the Mexican government is like, okay, we had a deal, but we want to get these people out of our hair. So we'll let them go. And it's your problem. And what are you going to do about it? But something has happened because I was on the Mexican side the day before yesterday. And one of the major crossings the one that's in all the media, and we've run it, video on that little dam, the spillway, right. where they were all coming through. Well, that's clear now. And on the Mexican side are state troops, state Coahuila state police officers with armored vehicles, and they've stretched police tape all over the place. And I asked what their orders were two days ago, and they said that it was no immigrants will go across here. And also... We got an order from the governor of Coahuila to turn back any buses or any other immigrants coming up here to turn them around and take them back down south and now demand papers. They have to have papers again. And so it looks like something happened diplomatically where the Mexicans had a big change of heart all of a sudden in the middle of the week. To be kind of cynical about it, too, though, They don't want the Haitians who are in the beachhead in Del Rio turning around and going back either. You know what I mean? In other words, in a sense, this is, I understand, and you're probably correct, that we've complained and they're trying to put a stop to this. But they also don't want 15,000 people turning around and going back into Mexico. It's like it's, it's our problem, and so they're on our side and they're our problem and they're not taking them back. And I'm sure that everybody knows that there is another way to do this, which is to just send everybody back down to the RGV, divert them, make it too tough to come through here where nobody cares. And there's no media, and except for the Center for Immigration Studies and Fox News, that's about it. Nobody's really covering or talking about what's going on. They'll certainly get through down there. And it's more spread out, like I'd said before. In other words, it isn't there isn't basically a shanty town that develops. They just come over, drip, 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 and they're all let in and they get away with it. So it's you can't yeah. take a picture of it if there's no mass of thousands of people. One of the pieces you wrote for us, and all your reporting's on our site at cis.org, it's Todd Benzman we're speaking with, is you went to the bus station on the Mexican side, the Ciudad Acuna is the town, the Mexican town opposite Del Rio in Texas. 
and you talked to Haitians, and some of them were going back. And uh, if you could tell us a little bit about what they were thinking. Yeah, that's right. Foremost on their minds, they were all buying tickets. They had come back from the camp. It's easy to get out of the camp. It's also still easy to get in the camp, by the way. In the last two days, they've only received one new immigrant hmm. uh, who came in. And I know that because I have friends inside who said we only gave one carnival ticket out, you know, those numbered tickets right. that they give to newcomers, and they've only given one out in the last 24 hours. So, But in any case, you can leave on your own accord by crossing the river back into Mexico. And that's what a lot of these folks did. They went to the bus station and were buying tickets back to Tapachula and Mexico City and Monterey. The ticket counter attendant said that they filled four buses before I got there during that day with other Haitians that were giving up the dream. And the reason was, when I interviewed them, is this uh, threat of repatriation flights back to Haiti, in which even if there was only a few hundred of those, the threat of that is so nightmarish they didn't even want to take this, the risk of crossing illegally somewhere else. They were utterly, utterly frightened and repelled by the idea of having to go back to Haiti. And so their plans, one after another after another, they all have the same story. We'd rather just be in Mexico and we'll get our papers, the documents that, that they said we didn't have to have last week, but now we, we can get them. And then we'll wait until this whole repatriation flight mania passes. You know, we'll try again when it's all calm and there's no more repatriation flights. When the uh, administration's attention turns to a different story. And the thinking here is, I mean, clearly is that these people left Haiti a decade ago, a lot of them, maybe, or, or many years ago, and have been living in South America, as you pointed out, in Chile and Brazil. And in a sense, they would have given up a relatively stable situation where they had jobs and a house. And if they lose, it's a gamble. If they lose, they'll end up back in Haiti. And that's not worth the risk, basically. And they'd be willing to kind of hang around Mexico and cool their heels until they're able to try again, hopefully without the risk of losing it all and ending up going back to Haiti. Right. But, I mean, to me, the broader lesson here is about the Biden administration choosing to do repatriation flights to Haiti, you know, that is a really effective, it shows just that bus station scene. The bus station scene shows just how potent a policy that is. Right. Just the thought of that will repel people and work on their decision-making to not leave wherever they are. That is just too nightmarish a thing. And the issue really becomes when this particular camp is closed and over, will the Biden administration maintain this incredible deterrence and use it for other nationalities and maintain it even for Haitians, but also all nationalities, to start sending people back to home countries? This very Trumpian. Right. Right. Uh, this kind of thing. Trump did this a lot, and it really shows how desperate this administration is to find something that will work when they need it to work. And the interesting thing is, when you went to the bus station and interviewed those people, 
they had only flown back 300-something people. There's only been one day of, but what was it, three or four flights worth of people, and yet even that little bit of enforcement changed people's decision-making and caused them to decide against trying to illegally remain in the United States. So, you know, the fact is enforcement works because it affects the incentives that people have and the decision-making for people. I don't know. I'm skeptical that the administration will be willing to keep up enforcement once the immediate political emergency from their perspective passes. But, you know, who knows? We shouldn't forget this is this experiment, though, however short-lived it is, how effective it was. Right. I don't know how effective it was yet, but we may at some point learn how widespread it was that people left and won't come back until they stop doing this. A couple of the pictures that accompanied one of your stories was really striking, and that was a whole bunch of Texas state police cars, the Department of Public Safety is what it's called, and state troopers that basically lined up on our side of that low water dam that you know was a little bit underwater, but you could walk on it. It's a wide concrete sidewalk basically into the United States. The Border Patrol wasn't permitted to stop Haitians from coming across. And what the governor of Texas did is just sent state police and stopping it. And I think one of the videos you showed is they had all of their lights flashing. Basically, it was, uh, you know, they were basically trying to shut this down, but it was the state that did it and not the feds. What's the state's role been? Well, there has been all along in a desperate situation like this where the federal authorities really, really, really want this to go away. They will collaborate with Greg Abbott's state police because they just, the need is, is so is so intense. In other words, even though the administration doesn't like the guy at all, when they're desperate enough, they'll work with him. Yeah, and so my understanding is that there was collaboration ahead of time. Mm-hmm. There was a plan, Ortiz came in, that the CBP, the, the chief border patrol agent, uh, Raul Ortiz, who, by the way, is from this area, came in, was sent in to take care of this, this camp, to eliminate the camp. Right. And they had come up with this plan for busing and also to shut and the repatriation flights and uh, possibly the Mexican government to do things in the interior and its interior and the DPS to come in and with a big show of force to shut down the most visible spigot. And so it was Mm pre-planned and it it is a little bit showy because it doesn't, the DPS doesn't really have any teeth to do anything. If they actually immigrants started coming through, they would just slip in between the patrol cars. Yeah, but they don't know that. They don't know that. Yeah, right. They didn't know that. And um, I'm not sure the DPS trooper show had this effect so much as whatever the Mexican government did on its side. Mm -hmm. And also the threat of the repatriation flights, that effect. But the camp has stopped growing. And then at the same time, they are bringing in buses to scoop out the people and move them. It's probably maybe in another 10 or 15 days, this camp could very well be gone. Interesting. 
Yeah, and all that means, though, is they'll be spread out in other places and then let go. Yeah, that's right. Has there been any reporting? Anybody gone to other Border Patrol sites to see where these people are being sent to, and are they then being let go into the interior? No, I haven't seen very much reporting on that. I did follow a caravan of buses to a Border Patrol station in the area, and I watched all the patients get out and get processed in, but I mean, I don't know what's going to happen after that. They'll be there for a couple days. And I mean, are they then dropped off at the Del Rio bus station or something? That's because that seems to be what they're doing down in South Texas is they just yeah. you know process them, take their names, take a picture and then drop them off at the McAllen, Texas bus station way down in South Texas. In this area, that is typically what happens. There's a non-governmental organization right in in town that organizes the buses for the released, the freshly released immigrants, and that is happening here. They are being released, and they are being put on buses at that NGO spot. But the truth is that they're busing them to places that are, you know, 100 miles away or 50 miles away. I I saw a U.S. Coast Guard plane fill up with immigrants on the tarmac at Del Rio International Airport, I'll put that in air quotes, <laughs> yeah, right. and take off for some distant place. I mean, I don't know where they're they're taking them to faraway places. So I'm assuming that we'll see that happen in these other locations. Basically, the point is, you know, release them in such a way that Fox News can't get a picture of it is kind of what it, I mean, to be blunt about it is what it amounts to. Yeah, I think that's probably what's going to happen. But the repatriation flights is something to watch because they keep messaging. Uh, Mayorkas was here in town yesterday, and Ortiz is still in town, and they keep messaging this thing about how they're going to ramp up those flights. And that could be part just strategy, you know, psyops right? as well. So we'll see what actually happens. But ultimately, if you don't follow through on the threat, your psyop kind of blows up in your face because then nobody believes you when you say we're going to do this if you don't, you know, follow through and stick with it. I mean, they're still flying people out, but if a week or two weeks from now they stop doing it kind of quietly, it's, you know, people are going to find out. I mean, the the grapevine will uh, pass that news on. It seems to me that the lesson here for border control is you need to be firm from the beginning across the board. Because the Biden administration kind of seems to have basically hoped that they could be lax at the border and Mexico would do their work for them and it wouldn't really blow up in their face. This obviously disproves that. What happened in Del Rio, the real question is, and there's no way any of us can answer this yet, is have they learned anything from this or will there just be another an emergency that the Biden's friendly media can't ignore six months from now somewhere else, maybe with a different group of people, Cubans or Guatemalans or who knows, the people from Mauritania. And I don't know if you have any uh, thoughts on that. I'd love to hear it. Do you get the sense from the guys you're talking to that they think that this may mark a real change or this is just a passing response to an emergency and it'll go back to Biden business as usual. Yeah, you know, I'm hanging with a lot of law enforcement types, so those people are naturally skeptical and right. <laughs> cynical. And I, I am a little bit too. I think that the goal here is to 
remove this blot from the media, right? but not the broader crisis and all of the factors and levers that need to be regulated and the levers that need to be pulled. You know, one of the big levers here is Mexico's, the, the relationship with Mexico, for example. Mm-hmm. And Mexico has a lot of control over this situation if they wanted to, if they were made to, but they are not being made to. And at any point, the next buildup, six months from now, they could just do another big release and right. say, go forth, go forth, my children, you know, just leave us. And, you know, unless the diplomatic different kind of strategy is used with the Mexicans, they, we won't be able to guarantee that this won't happen again. I mean, basically, you know, sort of the bottom line is the migrant crisis continues. This was a crisis on top of the crisis. But once they empty this camp out so that drones can't fly over and take pictures of this, what amounted to kind of a refugee camp practically, once that's over, the underlying migrant crisis continues. And it's not any less serious. It's just that it's, in fact, it's much a much bigger problem. This was one, like, outbreak, as it were, but the underlying problem continues. My fear is that the administration and its compliant media are going to, once the it's all cleared out, they'll take reporters in, and somehow that will be reported as though the migrant crisis has been resolved. When in fact, it's, yeah, Yeah. when in fact, it's continuing every day, even now, it's just doesn't, it's not as photogenic. That's the only real difference. If anything, it's much bigger than this problem. As you suggested, this was 15,000 people at tops, but in August, the Border Patrol apprehended close to 200,000 people over the period of that month. So the underlying migrant crisis continues even if they manage to sweep the Del Rio situation under the rug. That's right. And, you know, this is it comes out to about 50 apprehensions a week along the, the border, mostly here in Texas. In this last week of coverage of a, of a camp that had 15,000 in it, there are 50,000 people presumably crossed elsewhere. Right. And will this next week and the week after and the week after. And, you know, somehow I fear that everybody will go home and that will just continue like that and everybody goes home. The media people go home anyway, not the illegal aliens. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you, Todd. Keep up the good work down there. Again, Todd Benzman with the Center for Immigration Studies. He's our man in Del Rio. And his reporting and photos and videos are on our site at cis.org. Also, he has a pretty active Twitter account, at Benzman Todd. I mean, I'll keep my fingers crossed that we won't send you to some other emergency spot somewhere along the border in the coming (laughs) months, but maybe we'll have to. Thanks for joining us from Del Rio, Todd. Good to be here. Thanks, Mark. And finally, I just wanted to say a few words on some inside baseball in Washington, D.C., in Congress. It's very important inside baseball. There's something called a reconciliation, a budget reconciliation bill, which is basically a gimmick to avoid the Senate filibuster because you can pass this so-called reconciliation bill with only 50 votes 
or 50 votes plus the vice president. So that's what the Democrats are hoping for, because that's all they have. Whereas with a filibuster, you'd have to get 60 votes to be able to proceed. And so this is supposed to be for budget matters. It's an arcane part of Senate rules. And the point of it is to make sure that a filibuster threat can't, you know, stop the sort of tax collection and spending that the government functions on. And the rules are, the Senate rules are, you're not supposed to be including things that aren't specifically related to taxing and spending, to budget matters. And so what the leadership in the Senate has been doing, has done, was to add a huge amnesty and increase in legal immigration into this budget reconciliation bill. It's uh, huge. This is the $3.5 trillion package that some of you may have been reading about and includes a lot of other things that aren't really about the budget. But the thing that obviously is focuses our attention here at the Center for Immigration Studies is the immigration portion of it, which would amnesty an estimated 8 million illegal immigrants. Could be more, could be less if it actually went into effect, but those are the plausible estimates that have been offered. And also would increase legal immigration through a variety of gimmicks. We've written about the various parts of the immigration section of the reconciliation bill on our website at cis.org, both the amnesty parts and the legal immigration parts. But the obstacle to the Democratic leadership's objectives here to amnesty most of the illegal population, the largest amnesty in American history, was a person called the Senate Parliamentarian. And this is a person, uh, is a woman who is essentially the referee for Senate rules. She's the one who makes a decision whether something actually complies with Senate rules or does not. She can be overridden by the senators. I mean, they're, you know, they hired her, they can get rid of her, but that doesn't usually happen. I mean, this is the referee, and you know, if you're on one of the teams, you don't get to fire the referee if you don't like the result. And so the people had been making arguments, and I would submit actually even applying pressure to the parliamentarian to okay the inclusion of this vast amnesty and increased legal immigration provisions into this budget bill. And, you know, it was clear that this was a violation of the rules. The whole point of this budget reconciliation process is to sort of have a, a kind of a cheat code to get around the Senate filibuster, but only in a narrow area, not to just make regular policy decisions, legislation that isn't specifically related to the budget. And so what happened this week, uh, actually it happened um, Sunday night, was the Senate parliamentarian uh, released her statement on this, basically telling the leadership, no, you can't add this amnesty and increased immigration section into a reconciliation bill. It's a violation of the rules that's not supposed to be allowed. Now, this doesn't mean that it's over. The Democrats are looking into various plan Bs, but I don't think it's very likely that they're going to be able to include this amnesty in the larger, in this $3.5 trillion 
budget reconciliation bill. There may be some other Im- smaller immigration things they're able to sneak in, but even that I'm skeptical of. And uh, this is a broader separate point, but this whole bill, this $3.5 trillion package may not pass at all, entirely apart from whether there's any immigration provisions in it or not. So in a sense, it's a little bit of good news. It's not definitive yet. It's not that amnesty or some of these other immigration changes are now out of the question, but the big objective that the Democratic leadership and the White House were shooting for seems to have eluded them. So that's a little bit of good news to, you know, to sort of counterbalance the uh, bad news of the uh, disaster, continuing disaster at the border that Todd and I talked about during the rest of this episode. So that's it for this week. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies and host of Parsing Immigration Policy, a podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. We're online at cis.org. If you have a few uh, nickels uh, in your pocket that you don't have anything else to do with, feel free to click on the donate button at our website, cis.org. For those of you who like snark and sarcasm, I'm on Twitter at Mark S, as in Stephen, Mark S. Krikorian. And I hope you'll tune in next week. Thank you.